Hello, ladies. Hello. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm Deb Haygood, part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and it is my great joy always and great honor to be here with all of you studying God's Word together. And I also want to say hello to those of you that are streaming with us right now or joining us online. Thank you so much for being a part of this study. Um, we're going to continue looking at Hebrews today. Hebrews, what do you guys think about Hebrews? Uh, interesting, challenging, relevant and applicable. I hope it is encouraging your faith life. I'm learning that Jesus is bigger and greater in so many ways. And one of those ways is he is my great high priest. That's not one role of Jesus that has been uppermost in my heart and mind. And so the book of Hebrews has taught me a great deal. Now, the recipients of this letter, the Jewish Christians, they would have known very well the role of the high priest because of their Jewish culture and their religious practice. The high priest had a most prominent role in the Old Testament. And as we uh, look at chapter 9 today, we are continuing on to learn about Jesus Christ, our high priest. Last week with chapter 7 and 8, we talked about um, Jesus, our high priest, coming from the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Jesus he was the eternal priest interceding for us before the Father and bringing a new and better covenant. Today we're going to learn about a different role of Jesus as the high priest, and that is bringing the sacrifice. And Jesus is going to bring a better sacrifice, a once and for all perfect sacrifice for our sin so that we might be in an eternal, real relationship with God. Now we're going to turn to chapter 9. We're going to look at verse 1. And I want to say that um, the author here uses a lot of contrasts to make his point. So we're going to see many contrasts in this chapter 9. And he's going to begin with the earthly tabernacle. So let's look at verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So we see here the Old Covenant, it had directions for worship and a place to worship. Now, that doesn't mean that this was the beginning of worship. People had worshipped God for all uh, times. Certain people had worshipped him. We worship him today. God is worthy of our praise and adoration and love and delight. And we too sometimes worship God in a place of worship, a church. We can worship it anywhere. But often we come to church and corporately worship him together. Now, if I was to design um, my place of worship, it would include stained glass. I love stained glass. I think the light coming through it is beautiful. And usually stained glass has a picture of a story from the Bible. I love stained glass. I have a picture of a church that I think has the most beautiful stained glass that I've seen. And that is in Paris, France. It's called St. Chapelle's. And those beautiful walls of stained glass, each one of those little panes tells a story from the Bible, beginning with Genesis 1 and going all the way around through Revelation. You know, that was one reason why they put stained glass in churches long ago, because centuries ago, not very many people could read, but they could read the stories of the Bible in the stained glass pictures. Love that stained glass. But we know that God does not live in the church. His presence is there when we come together and corporately worship. But he doesn't dwell in the church. 
but not so with that first sanctuary in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. You remember Mount Sinai. Um, Moses took the Israelites out of Egypt, um, away from Pharaoh's slavery under God's direction, and he took them to Mount Sinai. And there, God gave Moses directions for the building of the sanctuary, that earthly place of holiness, also called the tabernacle. And God's presence, God's glory would dwell in the tabernacle. We know that from Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. I had that on your verse sheet. God is speaking to Moses and he says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture so you shall make it. God was going to dwell in the tabernacle among his people, the Israelites. Let's go on, look at verse two. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna. Now these three things, let me just say quickly, those were added to the Ark of the Covenant later. Um, The manna, that was the food that God gave them throughout their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. They had some of that in a golden urn. And then there was Aaron's staff that budded. Aaron was the first high priest. And that staff budding was God telling the Israelites, Aaron was his choice as that first high priest. And then the tablets um, of the law, that was the Ten Commandments. That's what uh, Moses got from Mount Sinai. Those three things were put later into the Ark of the Covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory. Those are angels of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. I love that he said that because I'm thinking, hey, we don't really understand the tabernacle as well as these Jewish Christians. We need a little more detail. So we're going to take a second to talk about some of these things. But the author is trying to say, don't get sidetracked with all of these beautiful things in the tabernacle. He's going to make his point in just a minute. He wants to move on. But let's take just a second to talk about these verses. So it says in verse 2, it was a tent. But it wasn't an ordinary tent. It was a most beautiful, elaborate, majestic tent. And in your study packet, you have a diagram of the tabernacle, and you may want to look at that at some point or right now. Um, So the tabernacle, around it was the tabernacle courtyard, and in the tabernacle, it was divided into two rooms, and you entered through that first door. It was covered with a curtain. You entered into it, and you were in that first room called the holy place. And against one wall on your left was the lampstand. It had seven bowls filled with oil with little wicks, and it was always kept burning. It gave the light in the holy place. And then directly across from that would have been on the right wall as you walk in was the table of the bread of presence or the table of showbread. It has many different names. Um, On it was 12 loaves of bread made from the finest flour, and they represented the 12 tribes of Israel. They also represented God's provision and sustenance for the Israelites. Now, it's interesting to know that these loaves of bread were changed out once a week on the Sabbath by the priests. And those priests would eat that 
uh, week-old bread. It might have been stale, but I guess it was still tasty enough. Um, Only the priests could eat it, and they could only eat it in the holy place. And it's interesting because everything in the tabernacle, and in the tabernacle courtyard, everything foreshadowed or pointed to Jesus. We see two of those very clearly here. The lampstand, we see light. And we know that Jesus, John 8, 12, on your verse sheet, he says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So that lampstand is pointing to Jesus, who's coming as the light of life. And then we know the bread. Um, Jesus says, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus, the bread of life, eternal life. And then there was this beautiful curtain, sometimes called the veil, and it separated this first room from the second, smaller room. And this curtain was beautiful. It was thick, about the width of a man's hand, and it was woven with the finest twisted linen in scarlet and purple and blue. And on it was embroidered cherubim, those angels embroidered all over. It was beautiful. And it separated the first room, the holy place, from that second room called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And on one side of that veil in the first room was the golden altar of incense. Now, it would seem when you read this that the author is saying that that was in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. But we know from every other scripture in Exodus and other places that that altar of incense was in the first room. So why would the author say this? Well, here is an explanation that makes uh, sense to me. He's going to talk about the Day of Atonement. That's his main point with the tabernacle in just a minute. And on that Day of Atonement, the high priest would take some coals and incense from that altar of incense. We have a picture of it. He would put it into a gold censer. You see that in his right hand. And then he would take that with him into the Holy of Holies. And that incense would burn as he walked in there. So that makes sense to me. And then, uh, the, uh, by the way, that altar of incense, that foreshadows uh, <clears throat> Jesus because we think of that incense going up as prayers going up to God. And we know, we talked a lot last week about Jesus interceding for us before the Father. So on the other side of the veil or curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. That was in the Holy of Holies. And the Ark of the Covenant, that was a box, a rectangular box. It was three feet by nine inches long, so a little more than a yardstick, two feet by three inches deep, and two feet three inches wide. And it was covered in gold. And on the top was a lid, and it was covered in gold, and it was called the mercy seat. And on either end of it would be two gold angels, they call them cherubims, and their wings were outstretched over the mercy seat. And in the Holy of Holies was the glory of God. God's presence dwelt there. And we know that from Exodus 40, verse 34. Now, chapter 40 uh, uh, is where Moses sets up the tabernacle. Chapters 25 through 40 tell you all about the tabernacle, if you want to read more about it. So Moses is setting it up. Everything's been made. He sets it up. And then in verse 34, it says this. 
Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord was over the mercy seat, coming up out through the ceiling of the tabernacle over it, and by day it looked like a cloud, and by night a pillar of fire, so that all the Israelites could see the presence of God, knowing that he was in the tabernacle. Beautiful there. This beautiful earthly tabernacle, it was ordained by God, it was made by man by the hands of men, and these were very talented craftsmen, gold-working guys and carpenters and all sorts of artisans and seamstresses that were weaving and making these beautiful curtains, but the hands of God, the hands of men. And it was a copy of the original that's in heaven. All was a copy, a shadow, of the heavenly things. And we saw that last week in chapter 8, verse 5, where it tells us it was a shadow of the heavenly things. So let's go on, look at verse 6. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second section, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So here we see the jobs of the priests. Uh, the priests were all from the tribe of Levi. That's why they're called the Levitical priests. And they would go into the holy place every day, several times a day, that first section, and they would perform their jobs. They would serve God, filling the oil in those little lamps. They would burn incense twice a day. By the way, that incense was made from a very special recipe only to be used in the holy place. You couldn't use it anywhere else and you couldn't use any other kind of incense, just this special recipe. And they would take care of the bread, we've already talked about that. But into the holy of holies, only the high priest would go and only one time a year. Now the author here is talking about the Day of Atonement. He doesn't describe it because his audience would know very well about the Day of Atonement. To the Jewish people, it was the most sacred religious ceremony. And it was very elaborate. Leviticus chapter 16 tells you all about it. The high priest had to do all sorts of different things and wear different things. But what the author wants us to know is that the high priest would take in the blood of a sacrificed animal and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. This was to cover the sins of the high priest and the sins of the people. That was what he wants us to focus on with the Day of Atonement. The high priest bringing in the blood of animals and sprinkling it on the mercy seat. But the important point that he's making is that this sacrifice did not give the people direct access into God's presence. They didn't have direct access. In fact, it says the Holy Spirit is teaching this. They were not able to draw near to God. The tabernacle was a visual illustration of this. 
under this system of sacrifices, it didn't really get to the heart of the matter, the conscience of the worshiper. The inside heart was not made right. It did not remove their guilt. The animal sacrifices only dealt with those external things, as did the ritual washings and food and drink and all those ceremonies. It was about the ritual and the outward behavior, ceremonial purity, not moral purity. It did not cleanse their conscience. So what is conscience? You know, we used to talk about that a lot more, I think, but nowadays we sometimes don't think people have a conscience, but I think they do. The definition is the recognizing of right from wrong in regard to one's own conduct. And I think deep down, we all have a conscience and we know this. And there is guilt that comes along with that doing something wrong. We feel guilty and that's an awful feeling. None of us like that feeling of guilt and along with that, comes usually shame, which is also a horrible, awful feeling. And guilt, by the way, moms, it is not a good motivator. It takes us in the wrong direction because we spend so much time spinning our wheels trying to get rid of that guilt, making ourselves right. Or maybe um, it's rationalizing our sin. Spend so much time in that that it drains us and we're in the wrong direction. It's futile. Because just like this audience of the letter understood the need to be made right, we too understand the need to be made right. And Jesus is the only one who does this. Only Jesus. And that phrase there, until the time of Reformation, that time of Reformation, talking about reforming the old covenant. It's referring to Jesus bringing the new covenant. So ladies, as the author is telling these, these people, he's saying to us, do not put your faith in temporary external works which have no eternal value. Don't add on anything. Just trust in Jesus, Jesus alone. Verse 11, let's go on. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So here we see the author making his first uh, contrast. He's contrasting that beautiful earthly tabernacle or tent with the original greater, more perfect, heavenly tent. The earthly tent was made by the hands of men. It's a copy of that original heavenly tent that was created by God. It's greater than. Jesus came as high priest of the good things and what it means there by the good things, the new covenant. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And salvation, eternal redemption. Jesus as high priest made atonement for our sin not in the earthly tabernacle, here's this second contrast, but he went into the perfect, greater, heavenly tabernacle, and not with the blood of sacrificed animals, but with his own blood. Jesus is our high priest, and Jesus also was the sacrifice. He entered the holy of holies once for all. 
because his sacrifice obtained eternal redemption, forever redeemed. Redeemed means to set free, to rescue or ransom. Um, we're rescued forever. We are saved forever. And that superior sacrifice, it's not necessary to offer those sacrifices over and over again. Verse 13, let's look at that. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Whoa, that's a lot of words. What does that mean? <clears throat> so once again, the author is talking about ceremonial washings under the old covenant law. And the audience here would have been aware of this. Um, a person becomes defiled or unclean, and there were many things that would make a person unclean. And one way um, that they became clean again was to wash with the ashes of a heifer. But it is um, just ceremonial cleansing. It's purification of the flesh with just this water. It's outwardly clean. By the way, this story of the heifer occurs in Numbers 19, if you want to go back and look at that. So he's talking again about those outward rituals. And so here's the contrast, verse 14. So how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How much more the blood of Christ? It's much greater than the blood of animals. Its value is greater than that. It's of infinite value, eternal value. And it says Jesus offered himself. Jesus, fully God, came to earth and he took on flesh fully man. He was tempted, he suffered, but he remained sinless. He was perfect without blemish, it says. Now, they would try to take animals without blemish. They'd try to get the one that looked most perfect, but they're looking at the outside. Jesus is without blemish on the inside. His character was blameless. Throughout his earthly life, he was sinless. He was without blemish. And it says he offered himself to the Father through the Holy Eternal Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit who sustained and empowered Jesus. So here we see the Trinity. You see that? Jesus, God the Son, offers himself to the Father through the Holy Spirit. And one writer said that this magnifies the greatness of this redemptive offering. So how much more will this purify our conscience from these dead works? The author is saying, from these futile works to make ourselves right, to clean our conscience. The author is referring again to those Levitical rituals and ceremonies. For us, it's other things that we might try to make ourselves right, things that are external. They don't really take care of our hearts, our conscience, that which is inside us. He's saying, and it's to us as well, Jesus is the only one who can make us right, righteous, whole, that sense of well-being, peace. His death paid the penalty for all our sin, our wrongdoing, our rebellion. Jesus is the only one who can do that because of his perfect sacrifice. And he saved us for what? To serve the living God. Did you see that? Wow, what a privilege. 
What an honor to serve God, to draw near to him, to fellowship with him. Jesus has opened up the heavenly holy of holies so we can draw near to our Lord, creator and sustainer of the universe. We're like that Old Testament priest going into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, but even better, because we can go as many times as we want. We can go every day as often as we want right into the presence of God. And then how do we serve him? You know, in my NIV translation, that verse ends with an exclamation point. And I thought, that's how we serve him, with an exclamation point. We serve him with our whole heart, whatever it is, praising him, reading and studying the word, taking care of your family or your uh, friends or neighbors or strangers, whoever you're taking care of um, in the name of the Lord. It could be giving back to him your time, your talents, and your resources, giving that unto the Lord. Your resources could be money furthering the kingdom, but it could also be your talents, such as um, knitting. Can you knit? Knit someone a blanket that needs to be warm. Can you write? Write a note of encouragement to someone who's down in the dumps. Is it music? Maybe you can sing or play an instrument. I played the flute once and thought that might be a way, but that ship has sailed. Um, <coughs> many talents that we have, many resources. You have a home, maybe open it up for something. Use it for the Lord. You have a car, drive someone to the grocery store or to church. Do your job, your work, whatever it is, unto the Lord, and you are serving the Lord. So many ways to serve him, as many ways as there are people here, because God has special ways for us to serve him. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 tells us this, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Ladies, you are redeemed and you are cleansed by his sacrifice. Serve God wholeheartedly with an exclamation point. Let's go on and look at verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive a promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So that long sentence begins with the word therefore. So we look back to see what it's talking about and we see it's talking about Jesus' death, the better, more effective sacrifice. And with this sacrifice, Jesus established the new covenant. The new covenant, which is reconciling sinful men to a holy God. So we can receive our eternal inheritance. And when it says eternal there, I see that eternal security. It says promised. As believers, we are not going to lose this eternal inheritance. It's a promise. And what is this inheritance? Well, it's different thoughts, reigning with Christ, maybe crowns given to us in heaven or treasures in heaven. Um, it's hard to really describe it because we can't really um, put our imaginations around glory. It's more than we can even imagine. <clears throat> but we know it's eternal, and we know that it's promised because of Jesus' death, which rescues us from sin, past, present, and future. 
Even the sin, did you see it there? The transgressions committed under the first covenant. Even the sin committed under the old covenant. And so I want to say real quickly there, this has been a question. How did the people in the Old Testament come to God? Well, they came to God the same way we come to God, through faith, believing in God. So they believed in God and their faith was credited to them as righteousness. And then with Jesus' sacrifice, his atoning death, his work on the cross, his blood also takes care of their sin. Sin in the past, the present, and the future. And I want to review for a minute covenant. What is covenant? Well, it's an agreement, or some say an oath, or a very, really strict, hard promise. And the old covenant gave Moses the law. It was good. It was for the benefit of the people. But it was conditional. Uh, the Israelites obeyed the law. God blessed them. The Israelites disobeyed or rebelled against God, and God withheld his blessing. It was discipline or even punishment. And these blessings, by the way, if you think about it, were mostly temporal. Rain, good crops, food, health, protection from enemies, temporary things. The old covenant was temporary. It was temporary. God's plan was always the new covenant, always the new covenant where the law would be written on our hearts. It's internal and it is eternal. It will not pass away. And the new covenant is unconditional because it's based on the superior sacrifice, the shed blood of Jesus. His blood satisfied the penalty of our sin of a holy God. So by grace, we are saved through faith in Jesus, by the work of Jesus. So a death is needed to establish this covenant between God and man. A death is necessary. And so now the author is going to tell us why Jesus' death was necessary. Look at verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Okay, so the first time I read through this, I thought that's kind of random. Now all of a sudden we're talking about wills. So what gives? Um, and looked it up right away to see what it is. The, uh, the word in Greek for covenant is the same word for will. Now they had slightly different meanings, but the author here is using a play on words. And I kind of like it because I understand a will. I get that. You um, go to a um, attorney and you tell him all the things that you have and who you want to get those things after you die. And he writes it up, becomes a legal document, and those listed in your will receive your inheritance when you die. But you have to die for it to go into effect. And so the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus' death had to take place for the new covenant to take effect. Goes on to talk about it a little more. Verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, that's a branchy branch, and he used that to sprinkle both the book itself, that's the Ten Commandments, the law, and all the people. 
saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. This is a story that you can read in Exodus chapter 24. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That is a verse from Leviticus 17, 11, and here is a point that he wants to make. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And I want to point out that when you read shedding of blood or blood, it means the same as death. That's what it's talking about, a violent death with the shedding of blood. So there had to be death for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus' death had to take place for the new covenant to take effect Jesus' death was necessary for the forgiveness of sin. My sin, your sin, his death was necessary. Charles Ryrie says his sinless life qualified him to be the suitable sacrifice for sin, but it was his death that made the payment for sin. And his death was voluntary. He gave himself. You know, I don't think any of the animals stepped up and raised their hoof and said, hey, put me first, but take me. I want to be sacrificed. No, I think they were kind of led, probably squealing and um, pulling and fighting all their way to the altar. Not Jesus. Jesus voluntarily gave himself. And his death was costly. He came to earth, he took on flesh and bone, he suffered physical anguish. You all know that anguish. Emotional anguish, he was rejected by the Israelites, those very people that he came first to save. He was betrayed by his closest friends. And the most painful, that moment when the father turned away as Jesus became sin, taking on the sin of the world, past present, and future. Sinless Jesus took on all the sin and became sin. It's emotional to think about his death, his sacrifice, that he took those nails in his hands, crucified on the cross, shed his blood, and died for you and for me. And he did it out of love, love for you and me. He loved us. Amazing love. How can it be? Uh, On your verse sheet, I have John 15, 13. This is Jesus telling his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And then Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our sin that we might become the righteousness. We can go with our righteousness right in to the throne room of God. Think about this. Ponder this incredible, overwhelming truth. Jesus died for you because he loves you. And he made it possible for our sin to be forgiven so that we can be in fellowship with him, walking day by day with him, trusting in him, leaning into him for help and hope and direction and peace. Ladies, consider this sacrifice for you and respond. 
If you've never responded by believing in Jesus, respond with faith and belief in Jesus. If you are believers, then respond this morning with humble gratitude. Humble gratitude. Let's go on, look at verses 23 and 24. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For God has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So the author is saying again, Jesus' death was necessary, and he's contrasting it now with the purification of that first tabernacle, that earthly tabernacle with the blood of animals. That's those verses that we just read about Moses and um, sprinkling the blood on all of that. But Jesus is going to enter into the heavenly tabernacle, that greater tabernacle, into the presence of God on our behalf. And so that sacrifice needed to be greater, greater. Jesus came entering before God to reconcile us to a holy God, and our sin is forgiven because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 25 Another contrast, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. End of the ages means um, the end of that old covenant era. He came um, at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself Jesus, the superior high priest, greater than the old covenant high priest who had to go in year after year after year after year with the blood of animals. Jesus brings a better sacrifice, a greater, superior sacrifice. Jesus is the sacrifice. In his shed blood, his death is sufficient to pay the penalty of our sin. Do you you see it there? To put away sin. His death was the final solution for our sin. He didn't just cover our sin like they sprinkled the blood and covered sin on the mercy seat. He removed it. He removed it. And I have a simple illustration. Um, Say I wake up one morning and I go into my kitchen and there's a dead mouse. I was going to say dead rat, but that seemed a bit much. So a dead mouse, I kind of scream. There's a bowl on the counter. I quickly cover that, put that over the mouse and cover it. And Scott hears me screaming, and so he runs out and says, what's happening? And I said, there is a dead mouse. I covered it with that bowl, but you have to get rid of it. So he goes, it's a good husband, gets a trash bag, puts the dead mouse in it, carries it out to the curb. Here comes the trash truck, throws the trash bag into the trash truck and takes it on to the dump. That mouse is out of my sight. It is removed from my house. It is gone forever. Not sure what I'm going to do with the bowl, but anyway, the mouse is gone. That's what it means to put away our sin. And it's such an important point that I have three um, verses on your verse sheet. Look at those. Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. 
Isaiah 43, 25, this is God speaking. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And then Jeremiah 31, that's that new covenant we looked at uh, last week. God says, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So let's finish up with these last two verses here. Look at verse 27. And just as is it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So uh, we see a couple of things here with that phrase, appointed for man to die once. There's the idea that humans die once. Jesus, fully human, came to earth and died once. And there's also the thought that men and women die once and then comes judgment. But for those of us who believe in Jesus, who trust in him, his sacrifice, his work, which is his death on the cross, his once and for all sacrifice, it's taken care of that judgment. His sacrifice took care of our judgment. And here's the sweetest news, he is coming back again. Jesus is coming again, not to die or deal with sin. He's coming back for us so that our salvation is completely and fully realized. As believers, our eternal inheritance, our eternal redemption is fully realized. And now this last verse would have also had some meaning for the Hebrew Christians. They would have understood this right away. Um, This chapter is contrasting the earthly tabernacle with the heavenly tabernacle. And that high priest who would go into the Holy of Holies one time a year with Jesus, the superior high priest, going into the Holy of Holies with his superior sacrifice in heaven. And on that day of atonement, All of the priests would be in the tabernacle courtyard, all of the Israelites on the outside of the tabernacle courtyard, and they were waiting to see if the high priest would come out, if he would live. It was a fearful thing to go before the living God. And would his blood sacrifice be accepted? Would the high priest live? And when he came out alive, the people would cheer and shout. Their sins had been atoned, and the high priest was living. When Jesus comes again, we are going to shout because our salvation is realized. Jesus is coming. And did you notice the word appear? I just want to say that real quickly. It's three times in these last few verses. In verse 26, it says he appeared to put away sin. That was his work in the past. Verse 24 says he's in heaven now, interceding for us, his present work. And then verse 28 says he will appear in the future. And our salvation that's based on his superior sacrifice will be realized The author, once again, is trying to make this point that he's been making throughout the book of Hebrews. He's telling these guys, don't go back to the old covenant rituals and worship. Don't add that on. Jesus is all you need. Jesus is greater than all this. Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin. Choose Jesus. Follow Jesus. It's the same thing 
He's telling us today, live every day with Jesus. Don't add anything on. Don't try to do things on your own works. Let it be Jesus. Every decision, every action, our words, our hope is in Jesus. And Jesus is coming back. There's many songs that talk about Jesus coming back. I love them all. I love that last stanza of How Great Thou Art. But one of the uh, little courses I sing the most, I learned as a little girl, I sing it to myself in the car, uh, maybe to my grandchildren, and it goes like this. These are the words. I'm not going to sing it. But it says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only son to die on Calvary's tree from sin to set me free. One day he's coming back. What glory that will be. Wonderful, his love for me. Ladies, Jesus is coming back. Let's encourage one another with those words as we eagerly wait for him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are mighty and magnificent and great. Oh, Jesus, we wait for you expectantly, eagerly. We say, come, Lord Jesus. Thank you, thank you for the sacrifice that you made on our behalf, that we can go straight into you, talk with you, walk with you. Thank you for these ladies. Bless each one of them. Father, may these words go deep into our hearts and draw us close to you. Bless them and protect them as they leave this place. We love you, Lord, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.